Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the business of cannabis. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg talk with the CEOs, politicians, and cultural icons driving the cannabis industry forward. This week is part two of Ann and Lewis's adventures at November's Marijuana Business Daily Conference in Las Vegas. Sitting in podcasters rows squarely outside the largest cannabis conference in America, amid the hubbub of nearly 30,000 people, Ann and Lewis spoke with two reporters on the front lines covering the legal cannabis industry. Bill Peters from Investors Business Daily and David Kretzman from The Motley Fool. Both offered incredible insight into the business of marijuana and shared their thoughts about what we can expect to see in 2019. If you're not reading their work, you should be. As always, we'll have all the links in the show notes on how to follow them. Don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our interview with Bill Peters and David Kurtzman with a little bonus content to follow. I won't spoil the surprise. So we're here from the floor of MJ BizCon, and we are here with David Kretzman, who is from The Motley Fool, uh, which is an in, it's a hybrid of an investor website. Uh, you do original content, um, and you've got uh, an incredible uh, platform for mostly retail investors, right? That's correct. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what you're doing and how you got to to pick the cannabis beat because that's that's a yeah, pretty cool Yeah, certainly not what I would have cool expected beat. to be doing a year or two ago, but here we are, 2018, anything goes. Yep. Uh, so I've been at The Motley Fool for several years. I joined uh, Fool HQ okay. based in Alexandria, Virginia in 2014. So for the first few years, I was focused on the U.S. side of our business. And the main business The Motley Fool offers today uh, are premium investing recommendation services. So typically, you'll sign up, you get a couple stock recommendations a month, really helping retail investors build out a diversified. What, what, what's the track record on those, re the, those the, recommendations? The track our, our bogey is always to beat the S&P 500 to outperform a, a basic index fund that people could invest in as an alternative. So we're, our whole um, theory is that if we're going to be picking individual stocks, we should be outperforming the S&P 500. Uh, our, our front <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah, that's that's certainly the goal. And our, our, our track record is strong in that regard with uh, Stock Advisor, which is our flagship uh, investing recommendation ser service. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but since that service launched in 2002, soundly outperforming the S&P 500. Uh, so anyway, I was with the U.S. side of our business for several years, and I'm still based in Virginia. but. Earlier this year, I joined our Canadian team, and our Canadian team is very decentralized. Uh, we have a few people working remotely in Vancouver, Ontario, uh, and some people like myself based at Full HQ. But this year, uh, our, our general manager approached me and he said, "You know, we're getting so many questions from our members about cannabis." And initially, I was a little bit hesitant or skeptical because at the Motley Fool, our investing approach is to focus on the underlying businesses and apply a long-term uh, framework to, to the stocks that we invest That's in. That's a challenge in cannabis, isn't it? Exactly, so I was hesitant. I was like, w can we really apply a business-focused long-term approach to cannabis because- When the business changes every three months, <laughs> right. or a month, or day. And it, and or it also day. Doesn't, have, it doesn't have years of, yeah. of, of earnings. Right. And it, there's not much of a track record. Yeah, uh, yeah and, there, and there's huge regulatory overhang and, you know the 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 footprint of these companies changed dramatically quarter to quarter. It's hard to model, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And 
before this year, I'd really just follow cannabis from a distance. And it's like, okay, it seems like there's a lot of penny stocks. There's a lot of speculation and day trading. Just not the game that we play at The Motley Fool. Anytime we recommend a stock at The Motley Fool, we typically intend to hold it for a minimum of three years. Uh, so at first I was hesitant, but I was like, no, I'll, I'll look into this because I, I've been peppered with questions from members myself. And we just knew there was, we knew that people were going to be buying these stocks with or without us. So it's like, okay, can we apply a capital left foolish approach to cannabis like we apply to other companies and industries? And I actually went up to Toronto to the O'Cannabis conference in June, had a chance to meet firsthand with some executives By and the insiders. Way, worst name of a conference ever. I mean, I, I think it's hard to top that name I personally. I think it's cute. You, you don't, you're oh. not a fan of O'Cannabis? No. Okay. No, no points for creativity? Zero. Okay. Well, Zero. Well, you know, but agree to disagree on that. That's okay. fine. That's okay. fine. Okay. Trust me, I'm not funny, so it's fine. <laughs> Neither am I. So, <laughs> but uh, after having the the opportunity to meet firsthand with people who really have their boots on the ground in this industry, it's like, okay, we have October 17th approaching in Canada, and at this point, obviously, and we're still sort of in, in the stage of, of the cannabis industry where every company at this point is talking to talk. They're saying how great their brands are going to be, how differentiated their business model is. They're going to have the best distribution, the lowest costs, the highest prices. Everything is going to be great. But pretty soon with October 17th coming and going in Canada with more states in the U.S. legalizing, came to realize that we're going to soon see which of these companies are walking the walk. And we'll be able to apply that long-term business folks approach that we love so much at The Fool to cannabis. So in, in June, we launched Marijuana Mavericks up in Canada, which is The Motley Fool's first ever cannabis investing recommendation service, really being upfront with our members that these are among the riskiest, most volatile stocks that we've ever recommended. And almost taking more of a... Who, oh, were, the, who were the first couple stocks that you guys looked at? So a few of the companies that, that were included in our, our buy recommendations would be uh, Namaste Technologies, CanTrust, Hexo, Kushko Holdings. Uh, initially, we started with 10 companies. And, and the idea is that we're trying to find companies that are doing something a little bit differently, something to separate themselves from the rest of the herd to build a differentiated business model with some sort of long-term sustainable advantage. Um, and applying a venture capital style approach, recognizing that there's not a whole lot of quantitative numbers that we can look at right now. You can look at the balance sheet, you can look at some revenue in some cases. Uh, most of these companies are still operating at a loss. So you're, you're limited with how much you can apply these quantitative uh, metrics to, to the companies. So taking a venture, venture capital style approach where we're looking at the qualitative factors like leadership, business model, strategy, and focusing a lot on the qualitative side of things. And also with that venture capital style approach, recognizing that a majority of the returns going forward are likely to come from a select few of those companies. So of those 10 companies we initially recommended, I wouldn't be surprised if five or more of those companies just don't pan out the way that we anticipate or hope that they could. Don't pan out as in like pets.com and go away or just that they're, they're they get a, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're duds, they, they underperform, potentially they go bust, they just fail to gain traction in the way that we think or hope that they could in the coming years. Uh, but but our, our whole hypothesis here is that there's no doubt that there is a large legitimate global legal cannabis industry forming here and that there will be eventual big winners in the bunch. So within Marijuana Mavericks, we're trying to find companies that looks somewhat likely to be building some sort of uh, differentiated model. In that, Canada. In, well, no, in Canada. Well, in, in in no, but the, but the Mavericks is... So Marijuana Mavericks launched in Canada in June, uh, but then in October we launched 
essentially the identical service. Legally, we had to change the name, so it's Marijuana Masters here in the U.S. Right. Okay. We launched that in October. We'll have links to all of this in the show yeah, notes. And, and yeah, and most of these services, well, when we do launch these services, they're only open to new members for a brief window of time, but Marijuana Masters is actually open for new members right now. So if you go to join.fool.com, uh, you can learn more about that service. It's currently open for a few days. And how much does it cost to become a member? Approximately? Uh, it's, it's in the thousands, several thousands. So we're, we're upfront with members saying that cannabis stock should be a relatively small portion of your overall portfolio. I've personally invested in every company that we've recommended within the service. I started with about 5% of my overall portfolio because if you think small caps or micro caps are volatile, cannabis stocks will take that volatility to a whole other level. So you just have to be comfortable with 20 or 30% swings on a day, daily or weekly or monthly basis. That's more the norm, not the exception in cannabis, as you all well know. So you buy cannabis stocks and you buy and you just chill. <laughs> that, that's it. No, chill and for you, three years. and you smoke. Or, or you <laughs> smoke. Yes, you buy. You buy the stocks and you buy the product, and you're good to go. Whatever floats your boat. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, and who are your members? Like, if you could do a, and are they are they different in Canada and in the U.S. Like in terms of like their their profile? I'm sure there's some difference, but for the most part, we're serving everyday retail investors. So that really the, the mission of The Motley Fool has for a long time has been to help the world invest better. So trying to just make investing in general, investing in stocks in general, more approachable and relatable to everyday people saying, you know, you can do this on your own. We can pick individual stocks and beat the S&P 500 or outperform the mutual funds that so many people get stuck with in their retirement pan plans or they just default to the mutual funds out there with the high expense ratios and things like that. So we're trying to make the whole concept of the stock market and investing in individual companies just more approachable and relatable. And we're applying that same approach to cannabis here. So it's been for me, it's been a fascinating industry to follow. Uh, the, the great thing about the cannabis industry is everyone is so down to earth and approachable. All, all these companies are looking for exposure, looking to get their stories heard, because at this point, most companies really only have stories at this point. Um, so, so it's been great to be able to, to interview a lot of executives and insiders and share that content with our members and just try to get more comfortable with the space. And then again, applying that long term approach here. So I've personally, as I mentioned, I've personally invested in every company that we've recommended within those cannabis services. And I've committed to not sell a single share of any of those buy recommendations for a minimum of three years. So we're really trying to, to fight against the, the short-termism, the speculation, the day trading that just dominates uh, the investing landscape with cannabis today. Recognizing that, yeah, not all these companies are gonna succeed, but if we can find one of those bigger eventual winners, those winners are going to materialize over the long term. So we describe it as, as that uh, some of these companies are going to be Amazon or Apple or Google. Some of them are going to be, like I said, pets.com. And, and having a broad enough exposure will give you the opportunity to have that huge upside um, and, and finding those, those huge winners. Mm -hmm. Is there a fundamental difference between the basket of companies that you're looking at in, in the Canadian um, version versus the American version, or are they the same group of companies? It's the same group of companies. Uh, sometimes a company will be so small, uh, often trading in Canada, that we just can't recommend that to, the, to our U.S. members because we have more members in the U.S., and we would just pop the heck out of that stock if we recommended it in the U.S. But it's the same basket of companies. Uh, it'll be companies that are both Canadian and U.S., but obviously just given the, the regulatory landscape, if you're a US operator, you're going public on the Canadian Securities Exchange. So there's really no way you can separate the two. You, you, you can't focus entirely on the US or Canada without looking at the other. So I'd say for the most part, you, you could say that we're focused on 
North America, but yeah, focus on companies that are listed in Canada and the U.S. So over the last uh, couple of weeks, we've seen some huge U.S. companies, well, huge, but big U.S. companies list, right? You saw Curaleaf raise $400 million. You saw Acreage raise over $300. I'm not sure what Harvest came in at, um, but th there have been this series of American companies that are raising a massive amount of money. And then you compare that to what happened in, in Canada where you have Aurora and T-God and um, Canopy that have even bigger war chests. Mm -hmm. And there's this trend of M&A. Do you think the U.S. guys have enough of, a, of a, both a physical lead and a, a cash lead to hold off the LPs in Canada? Or, or where do you see this going? I mean, for now, the, the Canadian LPs really have their hands tied when it comes to expanding within the U.S. And I think more attention from the media and the investing community will be shifted toward the U.S. in the coming months and years, especially depending what, what happens with the U.S. federal government. If it's decriminalized in 2019 or 2020, like if you think October 17th was a big catalyst for the industry, just wait until that happens here in the U.S. But Any predictions? I think I think we'll see a major step in 2019. I wouldn't be surprised. The States Act, States Act, or some. I mean, you just ne never know what what Trump is going to do. But uh, Trump has never actually spoken out against the idea of of legalizing cannabis. Uh, and I think now, after the midterms, you just have a lot of momentum uh, within Congress, with the executive branch, and with the states in general. That I would be surprised if we don't see some major step. You referenced October 17th, mm -hmm. and, and the impact that that has had on the capital markets is exactly the opposite that you would assume, right? You know, after after Canada formally legalized, we've seen a 40 or 50 percent drop in the 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 industry. Mm -hmm. When does that reverse, or are we in? Just or was a, that a correction? Or or and also this happened similarly last year at this time that there was a big sell-off until January, and then the the stock started to appreciate. I mean, it's impossible to say, and I'm not in the business of predicting short-term share prices, but I think it's fair to say that a lot of the larger Canadian producers, it's hard for me to justify the valuations that they were at. And even in the case today, I think it's still hard to justify the valuations that they're at. Because you, you think about it. You mean $33 billion for Tilray is just uh, I mean, it might, might zero be a, revenues? A tad, a tad high. Uh, but w when you think about it, those Canadian LPs have their hands tied when it comes to entering the U.S. market, so long as you have that murky legal status on the federal level. California's cannabis market today is bigger than Canada's probably ever will be. And that's just California. And you, you think about the multitude of other states in the U.S. that are legalizing either medical cannabis or recreational cannabis in some shape or form. I think the majority of the value should be sh shifting to the U.S. because the U.S., for a variety of reasons, is just a far more attractive market than Canada. Uh, you think about the branding and packaging restrictions that you have in Canada. You can only have a small logo on what's otherwise nondescript, plain medical packaging. And you already packaging. can't advertise. So like, how yeah. are people really understand? Yeah, I mean, we talked with Nick Kovacevic about that the other right. day, and it's insane. The CEO of Kushko. CEO yep. of Kushko. And uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, and people have to be really creative about what's on the shelf. And, you know, they have to prove that every little thing is, is meaningful to the pack. Like, it, it does something in the package, which mm -hmm. is just... Yeah. Anyway, sidebar. No, no, I, I think it's a great point because you think, okay, are you more likely to create an eventual dominant global consumer brand with that really restricted environment in, in Canada? 
or in an environment like California or Colorado where you're not limited by product forms. You can do more than just the, the uh, dried flour and the oils. You can do the edibles, the beverages, the vaporizers. You can already do that in, in markets like California and Colorado. And then you're also not restricted nearly as much when it comes to, to building a brand, having creative packaging, different things like that. Plus, those markets are bigger than Canada's market probably ever will be. So I take a step back and I think, okay, there's probably going to be more value to be captured in states like California and Colorado. And as more states come online in the U.S., than will ever ever be created in Canada. So I, I think there's, uh, there's going to be a flip that switches at some point. I think as more companies uh, operate in the, in the legal adult use environment in Canada, we'll begin to see, okay, this market isn't quite as big as might have been hyped up to be, or certainly not big enough to justify those lofty valuations of the bigger producers. And I think you'll see attention shift to the US. The Motley Fool is, you know, for the retail investor is well known. Can you talk a little bit about the, the way that you analyze companies? Like what is, the, what is the lens that you look through to say, okay, buy, sell, hold, and duration? And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna also ask you, give us two or three names that you like, because why not? Um, you're sitting here and I would, <laughs> I would be stupid if I didn't ask. So talk, talk first about the lens. Like how do you evaluate these companies? Sure, well, I'd say The Fool focuses on qualitative factors more so than a lot of other investing recommendation firms out there. We're, we're focused on things like uh, a company's leadership, employee culture. Uh, is this a place we'd want to work at? Is this a CEO we'd want to work for? Trying to, to look at it through that lens. And then from a higher level perspective, we're trying to find companies that will be increasingly relevant five plus years from now. Ideally, we're finding companies that we won't just be holding for a few years, but ideally, in the case of like Starbucks or Amazon, companies that we want to hold for decades, companies that will be creating value and becoming more relevant in our society around the world. Uh, and, and that's where the majority of the value is created with companies like Apple, Starbucks, Netflix, Amazon. The, the great returns aren't captured in just a couple years with any of those great companies. They're captured when you can find those great businesses and just diligently hold them through thick and thin over a long-term time horizon. So from a higher level perspective, that's really what we're looking for is finding companies that will be increasingly relevant. So that means you're typically going to find companies that uh, are growing their, their revenue at a pretty healthy rate. Uh, they're operating in a market, uh, a total addressable market that's ideally growing and expanding over time. Uh, and then companies that have you know a, a strong balance sheet and or cash production to fuel that growth and fuel that investment. All right, so name some names. Uh, of, of cannabis in particular? Yeah, the guys that you like. You know, and it, maybe maybe you're going to give our audience, this is a special discount <laughs> for you listening, <laughs> but access to some of the stuff that you guys are, I mean, I know you named some of the names in the 10, but maybe not who are in those basket, but that are maybe just on the outside that you're looking at and saying, I like those guys. If only, and then, you know. Sure. Yeah, I'd say Medman is a company that uh, at first I was skeptical about when, when they first IPO'd earlier this year, but spending more time looking at the U.S. operators, and I, I really like a lot of the approaches they're taking to building what seems to be a pretty powerful brand in key markets like Southern California, Las Vegas, New York City. Uh, with that said, they're not shy about issuing stock and diluting <laughs> themselves to make a lot of acquisitions. Uh, they're burning a lot of cash, so I just wonder, okay, how durable is that approach? I want to actually see some tangible traction from them with the actual underlying performance of the business. So if I actually saw you know, you know, operating cash flow production uh, start at least getting close to being break even, uh, 
or, or if the company was able to sustain itself without relying on debt or equity, then I'd be a lot more comfortable uh, stepping in. But th that's a company that's toward the top of my list because, like I mentioned earlier, I think the majority of the value going forward will be coming out of the U.S., especially you know if and when the federal government does decriminalize cannabis. Um, I, I think you just see the floodgates open within the U.S. for, for all the reasons that we've talked about. Uh, so Menmin is another one. Uh, another one that's on our watch list, uh, similar reason, Charlotte's Web, uh, a company that's focused on the, the hemp oil and CBD side of the business. But they're, they're a company that's impressively already profitable today. Uh, they're not burning a lot of cash. They're not unprofitable like a lot of the other cannabis producers in the rest of the US or Canada. Uh, in that case, I just wonder how durable is the brand advantage with CBD? Like I personally bought CBD from Charlotte's Web, but there's nothing really there's nothing developing a sticky relationship there, at least in my experience. And they're a company that's trading over one and a half billion dollars today. So I just wonder, okay, are they able to enter new categories and apply the, the early brand power that they have to other categories to justify what's still a, a pretty lofty market cap? So those are the, a, a couple of the companies today. I'd say most of my attention is shifted to companies that are uh, demonstrating traction here in the U.S. and doing something a little bit differently, especially on the, the uh, consumer brand or the retail side of things, because in most industries, the majority of the value will be captured with the companies that are interacting with the consumers on, on, on the ground floor. Uh, so that, that's why I think MedMen, Charlotte's Web are interesting companies to keep an eye on. What's your, we, we talk about this on the podcast, um, you know, at the end of every episode, which I'm not saying this is the end, but what's <laughs> the big story that we're missing? Or, or what's the one story that you think isn't getting enough attention um, in the cannabis industry? I'm going to sound like a broken clock here, but I think the U.S. is something that has largely been overlooked. So much of the attention has been focused on Canada, especially with October 17th, and it's a huge milestone. I don't want to downplay that at all. So it, Canada, rightfully so, attracted a lot of the attention. But when you just think about the U.S. being a far bigger market, a market that's friendlier to, to cultivating brands, you have multiple product forms already legalized today, not some iffy date in the future. I just think the ability for companies to build, to potentially build a powerful, dominant global consumer brand is far higher uh, if you're operating in those environments in the US than if you're just focused in Canada or Europe or Australia, markets which are interesting and certainly worth exploring, but just from that brand development perspective, I think are far more limiting. So uh, for that reason, I think the US is something that has largely been overlooked. And I think going forward, I wouldn't be surprised if you see the largest market cap companies in the industry shift from being those Canadian producers to these U.S. companies. Boris Jordan, the executive chairman of Curaleaf, has described the U.S. as the largest emerging market in the world. Right? It's already a $75 billion annual market and only about 10 or $11 billion illicit. So you're talking even without expanding it from a form factor perspective, a $65 billion market opportunity. And these companies, the US companies, they're not targeting 30% market share, they're targeting five or 10% market share. So the opportunity that they see is, is tremendous. As you've covered the capital markets, do you think that investors are gonna take a, uh, a cyclical approach to the industry where, okay, Canada was the flavor of the month, now that Canada is legal, you you know you buy the rumor, you sell the news. It's time to come into the U.S. Will we see a, a rotation out of the Canadian stocks into U.S. stocks as we get closer to a potential passage of the States Act? 
I wouldn't be surprised if we see something like that again. Like I'm always looking at this not from where, not 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 with the angle of where will these stocks be in a year from now. I'm more interested in where will these companies and their respective share prices be three plus years from now. But yeah, personally, I wouldn't be surprised if if we see. Uh, more investor attention and investor dollars shift from those Canadian companies to the U.S. for all the reasons that we've talked about. And I had a chance to speak with Ben Kovler, the co-founder and CEO of Greentham Industries. We're big fans of Ben's. Yeah, a really impressive company. And that's another one that's on our watch list, by the way, along with Medmin and Charlotte's Web and a few others. But the way he, he put it is that in Canada, you have a total market cap of the Canadian producers that's somewhere around $65, $70 billion, depending on the day or the hour. Not, not today. <laughs> Definitely not, not today. today. Uh, yeah, a little bit of carnage out there. Uh, but, but you have essentially, let's say, $70 billion of market cap going after what's a market opportunity in Canada, anywhere between 5 or $10 billion. No, they, they're, uh, they're estimating it. So, Mar so Adam Orange from the Marijuana Policy Group, um, which does these types of big policy analysis, said that the, the Canadian market... Cowan has pegged it at around a five to seven billion dollar market, right? Okay. Yep. Adam is saying they're off by a good thirty to forty percent. It's it's at least thirty percent bigger. So, okay. but even if yep. it, even if it's a seven billion dollar market and you do thirty percent bigger, it's a nine billion dollar market. Yeah. Right? So let, let's let's be generous and say it's a ten billion dollar market opportunity in Canada. <laughs> But today, you already have about $70 billion in collective market cap of the Canadian companies up there. Flip that to the US, and you probably have you know, anywhere between 10 and $15 billion in market cap among those bigger players for a far bigger market opportunity. So it's almost like the inverse, where Canada, you have a lot of market cap for a smaller market opportunity, whereas in the US, you have a smaller market cap for a much bigger opportunity. So I think investors and the media will increasingly see that, that divide and recognize, hey, there's probably a lot more value potential for investors and for entrepreneurs in general here in the U.S. But again, our approach within Marijuana Mavericks or Marijuana Masters is always looking at that long-term lens. And honestly, like speaking with the entrepreneurs and executives at these companies, I think they're entirely on board with the investing approach that we're applying here, focused on following the progress of the companies over the next three plus years. I mean, we do IR. We would love, I mean, for all of the shareholders to be like, we're in it for three years. And, yeah, you know, right. like we would get lots fewer well, nasty calls. I, I mean, the sure. problem <laughs> is that it's so widely held by retail and these you know, retail investors, they own a couple hundred shares, a couple of shares yep. and every move they're on the phone calling management or calling us or and saying, why is the stock down 2% today? Mm -hmm. They don't have this long-term view. So you educating the industry as to three to five year time horizon is much healthier, I think, both for the investor and for the, for, for the industry. Wish some of the CEOs weren't sitting on level two all day, mm -hmm. but they yeah. do. <laughs> I mean, a, a lot of the, the entrepreneurs and executives that we talk to, I mean, <laughs> That, that's similar to how I think great entrepreneurs in any industry will look at their companies. They're not so worried about their next quarter's results. And unfortunately, a lot of companies can, can get caught up in that short-termism and just fret about how Wall Street's gonna react to the latest quarter of earnings. But you think about the visionary leaders like Jeff Bezos with Amazon or Reed Hastings with Netflix, they're far more interested in where their companies will be three or five or 10 years from now than the next couple quarters. Jeff Bezos said like, you know, when people say, Congrats, guys! Great quarter. He's like, that that quarter's results were locked in like three years ago, and we're focused on that that quarter three years from now. Uh, Is there I a CEO that's operating today that you're going? That's the Jeff Bezos, or that's that's you know, or or I mean, is there who's the guy that you're going or woman, hopefully, <laughs> that that 
has that kind of vision? I, I don't know if I'd put that much pressure on anyone to say that they're the Jeff Bezos of the industry, but to your point, something that we'll look at is insider ownership. How, how, how much skin in the game do these executives have? Because in a lot of cases, a lot of these companies have only been publicly traded at most for a few years. So it, it, it causes me to scratch my head if you see uh, a, a young company that's still losing money and you have a founder CEO who only owns 2% of the company. It's like, okay, if you don't have enough conviction to have a high percentage of your net worth in your baby, in this company you're developing, why should we as investors uh, trust you or, or put our hard-earned dollars there? So uh, That's what, what Dan Danny Moses says the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a, a big high net worth investor in the space. And when he analyzes companies, he looks at how, what percentage of ownership and how frequent do, does management actually sell? Uh -huh. If they're selling into, like they may be paying themselves a dollar, but if they're consistently selling shares into the market, it means that they don't value the equity as much as they value cash. Right. No, and I think that's an important thing to look at because right now is the time if you're going to try to get a short-term cash grab, you know, I, I think there, there are people who are unfortunately jumping on that shorter-term opportunity. They're not really building a business for the long-term. They're more just trying to ride the wave of investor and media hype right now and then you know, slowly but surely cash out along the way. But one company that, uh, that I do really like, uh, the approach is one that we've talked about, Kushko Holdings. Um, Nick Kovacevic, the co-founder and CEO. And client he, of KCSA's full disclosure. Yeah, and, and no, no, no one put me up to, put me up to say that, <laughs> full disclosure. Here, wait, but, wait, give me that 50 back. <laughs> right, slip it to you. No, but but something I like about Kushko is that the, the co-founders still own, I think, over 30%. Insider ownership as a whole is close to 50%. To me, that just gives me so much more confidence that, okay, these co-founders and the people who are running the business on a day-to-day -day level, they're much more interested in where the company will be over the long term, and they're not just juicing it up for, for short-term results and short-term gains. So that, that's something I really like to see. And some of these other US operators will have higher insider ownership. You have like really, unfortunately, complicated holding structures where it'll be um, you know, a private investment vehicle that owns 60% of the shares. And it takes a little bit more digging for the investor to figure out, okay, who owns that private investment vehicle who owns the majority of this company's shares. But yeah, Kushko is one where I like to see First of all, the co-founder is still with the, with the companies, and then the co-founder is still owning a, a very healthy chunk of their overall business. So for me as an investor, I wouldn't invest in a company only because of that, but it's certainly a factor that we look at. I have a dumb question. I think it's a dumb question. Do the exchanges matter? So we didn't, we interviewed that is Richard dumb Carlton. <laughs> oh my God. You, it's totally fine. I mean, it's so not we, a dumb we interviewed question. It's a good Richard question. Carlton the other day from uh, the Canadian Securities Exchange or the Cannabis Stock Exchange, depending on how you name them. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that a lot of these U.S. companies, their only vehicle is either in Canada. I mean, the t and the TSX has said, thank you no more, right? So it's only only the CS, uh, CSE or they can go to the OTC in the U.S. Um, and they're very limited in getting on the big exchanges. Does it matter? Do you do you, do you look at that and does that matter? Like, you know, Kush is a great company. It trades on the OTC. Would it would would you look at it differently if it jumped to the Nasdaq? I think I, th I certainly think if you're on a higher level exchange or a, a bigger exchange like the Nasdaq, NYSE, or the TSX in Canada, it certainly helps just from a reputation perspective. But in this case, looking at these cannabis companies, I'd say I've gotten more comfortable looking at the smaller exchanges like the CSC or the OTC. I had never heard of the CSE how about before. CSC cannabis. How, about, very how, about, how about the Don't Neo? About I've never heard of the Neo until recently. Yeah, the Neo is a newer one. I haven't actually looked at many companies if. Uh, very, very closely that that are traded on the neo. So I think 
you do want to be careful as an investor looking at companies on those exchanges because you certainly have some winners there, but sometimes companies will be on those exchanges for a reason. They're, they're not able to list on those bigger exchanges. I think cannabis companies have a, a legitimate excuse. Like they, they just really have their hands tied. They don't have a whole lot of options. So specifically looking at the cannabis space, I'm comfortable with a company regardless of which exchange it's on. And then from there, just looking you know, for those underlying factors like business performance, leadership, insider ownership, strength of the balance sheet, what's their long-term strategy. And if, those, those, if we can check the boxes on those areas, we're kind of indifferent to which exchange the stock trades on. I think that's a lot. <laughs> we, we covered a lot of ground. We this did was cover a lot, a lot of fun. fun. Yeah. So uh, plug it again. So we're talking to David Kretzman of The Motley Fool. Where can people find you? Yeah. So if you're interested in learning more about Marijuana Masters, which is the first ever cannabis investing recommendation from The Motley Fool in the U.S. It's open for a limited time the next couple of days in the U.S. You can go to join.fool.com. And more broadly, you can find uh, more information in the U.S. at fool.com uh, and fool.ca if you're based in Canada. We also have operations around the globe. So for any international listeners, uh, feel free to jump into those sites. And we also have operations in Australia, Germany, the U.K., uh, increasingly Fool Asia. So Motley Fool is global, uh, awesome. trying to, to cover a lot of industries, including increasingly cannabis which has been a lot of fun so check out fool.com awesome thank you so much thanks, thanks for having me this is great we are again from the mj BizCon show floor from podcasters row and we have the pleasure of speaking with bill peters who is the cannabis beat reporter and editor for well what's your title sorry oh, i'm gonna have him do his own title because <laughs> i screwed that up Hey, Bill. Hey, I'm just a reporter. I'm <laughs> From not Investors editor. Business Daily, yes. Investors.com, mm-hmm. prestigious publication yes. that is now covering cannabis. So that was a big, that's a big deal. Yeah, you know, um, although actually, you know, my, my editors were, were really pretty cool with it. Um, you know, I think we, I think we, we, held, we held one meeting about, you know, new topics to cover. This is sometime last year. And somebody pitched the idea of covering medical marijuana. Wait, where, where's IBD based? Los Angeles. So it was a really hard, I mean, did, did you guys bring in product to sample around the table? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm selling to everyone in the newsroom. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it was a, and, and actually it was pretty much after, after that one meeting, it was not a long meeting. Um, I just decided to register with one of our producers to go to a conference that was taking place in downtown LA at around that time. This was around September. Uh, the Cannabis, Cannabis World, World Congress. Congress. What's that? It's probably the Cannabis World Congress. It was a. Uh, it was. It was MJAC 2017. That. Uh, oh. I've never yeah, even heard that, of that. That's, that's, it was a. Uh, yeah, it was in downtown LA last year, beginning of September, I think. And that was the first conference that I went to. And before that, I think I interviewed maybe somebody from. Uh, I believe it was Arcview, and that was, I think, the first story that I did mm-hmm. about the industry. And uh, basically, yeah, it, it, was, it was not a long conversation. We really just decided to, 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 start, to, to start doing it. And so is it your full-time beat now? Uh, no, I cover, I cover lots of other things. I cover, uh, I cover banks, I cover airlines, I cover fast food, I cover some retail. But increasingly, I, I've been trying to focus more on this and I've been doing far more reporting on this industry than those others in recent months. 
Are you finding you you get more um, more feedback either from readers or from like your your colleagues on the stories that you do on Canvas? Yeah. Are they yeah. are they still considered how do sexy? They, how do they rate? Yeah. Well, you know <laughs> what what is what is interesting is that as I've started to write about this more and as more people that I know just in my life come to know about it. You know, a lot of people have come forward and say, well, hey, man, you know, listen, I, I actually take a CBD, you know, or and so I, I've had I've gotten that conversation a lot more from a lot more a lot of people that I know who I would not expect to have that conversation with. Yeah. Yeah. What is the thing that as you have started to cover the industry more in more depth and, and you bring the rigor that IBD does from a financial media publication? What's the thing that's been most surprising about this industry to you? Most surprising, you know, I think the thing that always surprises me is, and it's the thing that I'm, I think I'm most interested in, in covering this industry, is, is sort of, the, is, is how the industry is sort of finding its way through, through cracks in legal barriers. You know, I think earlier this year I heard about, uh, you know, when, when Kronos Group started trading on the NASDAQ, yep. you know, that of course that raises I think that raises obvious questions or at least it was obvious to me you know well, how are they able to do that and so you know in something like that where you have an exchange that's sort of that's said to be sort of industry agnostic you know something like that uh, w w was interesting to me and and it's it's surprising to me and I think it's it's surprising to me because you know of when when I grew up when when this product was you know very illegal um, and and the culture was very different around the industry. You know that you know. The, I think that uh, seeing you know my early notions, my early my early perceptions of what cannabis was, run up against sort of kind of you know the, the sort of the corp the dense corporate. Did, did you have a gestalt moment? I mean, was there this moment you went, oh wait, this is real. This is a real business. This isn't just a bunch of guys slinging weed. Well, yeah, I think um, you know the, the, it's it's. I think when I first when I first. Check, sort of checked back in with, with the industry and I noticed the marketing of it. You know, there's sort of this kind of whole foodsy startup aesthetic to some of these companies. And then when you go to these conferences and, you know, you, and obviously there are tons of people in suits. Um, that, I think that's, you know, that, that, that's when you realize, you know, that obviously a, a, a change has, has, has arrived. Yeah. The money has arrived. Yes, that too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how, I guess how do you report on it from a do you report on it from a, a, a U.S. investor perspective, or are you reporting on it from a more global or North American perspective? Primarily from a U.S. investor investor perspective. You know, the, we I think we sort of started covering this. You know, I think the entry point was kind of like it was Canopy Growth and Kronos debuting on uh, the Nasdaq and the New York Stock Exchange, and so you know, and since that's what our publication focuses on, is mostly trading on 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 the big U.S. exchanges. That's sort of where our focus is. I've kind of branched out and uh, begun talking with you know some of the U.S.-based companies that have gone public in Canada, and I've sort of sort of, sort of tried to, started to cover more of that that cross-border insanity that's happening with with, uh, <laughs> with with the different deals and investments going on. Is there an industry analog that you see to this? I mean, you know, a lot of people said this is akin to the tech boom in like late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I know that others are saying, oh, this feels a lot like the crypto boom, you know, from a year and a half ago. I mean, is there is there a, a lens that you're looking through this industry at? You know, I try, I try to uh, I try to read as much analyst research as possible and and get as many. <laughs> Not a lot of reading. 
Yeah, well, you know, well, actually, analyst coverage has grown, and uh, you know, and you you get you get research reports that that are you know with, with that, that are written about with, with the writing. The prose is the same as you know as any other uh, stock that you'd cover. Um, is you there know, an analyst that people should be paying attention to that you think is really doing a good job? Let's see. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if I could endorse anybody, but uh, you know, I think I think um, you know, I think that uh, you know, obviously, Cowan was an early. Yeah, Vivian does a good job. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I've spoken with Vivian a couple times, and uh, and then um, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know if I can endorse anybody okay. per se, but uh, uh, so we're not going to put. Well, we won't even ask you to name stocks. I mean, we had the, we had um, David from Motley Fool on, and we yeah. we we said, all right, you have to name names. So we're not going to make you do that. <laughs> I yeah, I, I can't I can't pick stocks, you know. But I do think that to, I can to, pick them, but if I pick them, they go down. <laughs> well, you know, to, to to actually answer your original question. Um, you know, I, I don't know how long some of this can last. It seems like, you know, I, I feel like certainly in a new industry, there is going to be a kind of a, a, a dot-com-esque shakeout. I, I don't know how that doesn't happen. That doesn't mean that, that, that bigger survivors don't emerge the way, you know, Amazon or Netflix emerged from, you know, the dot-com era, you know? Right. Those are the two companies that David Kretzman just mentioned, too. Yeah. Yeah, well, because there is an analog, right? Yeah. I mean, the, I think that for for the way that I look at it, and I think that we look at it differently, is you know the internet boom was based on a potential market that had not yet been realized. The cannabis industry is taking an already existing market and converting it from an unregulated, untaxed, illicit market to a regulated, taxed, illicit market, right? Sure. So you're, you're not creating demand. You know, people already smoke pot or eat edibles. It's now just getting them to do it in a regulated fashion. Yeah, and, and that's the argument that a lot of executives make is that the demand is that this, the, the, the demand has been there for, for decades. It's just a matter of converting it. And, mm-hmm. and that's, where you, that's where you start to run into to problems. You know, there, there's some research out there. That, that says that, you know, a, 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 you know, I think, I forget the exact number, but a sizable chunk of people in California, you know, still occasionally bought on the illicit market, you know, largely to avoid markups and taxes and inconsistent regulations from community com- to community. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's as, I'm sh- as, every, as everyone in this industry said, you know, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. That transition. Well, and we, so many of our clients say that their their competition and the big multi-state operators, their, their competition is not necessarily one another because there's so much, there's enough for everybody at this point, but their competition is really the street and the black market. Yeah. And trying to convert those people who are so used to buying on the black market, but not really knowing what they're getting either. And, and especially from a medicinal purpose that they're not really understanding, you know, what's in it from the guy that's been delivering it to me for years, you know, sure. not really understanding. Yeah. That, that's, um, Oh, 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 certainly. You know that, that and that's, uh, um, yeah, competition being a, being the street. It seems like a lot of the companies that operate in different states, it, it you know, it seems like it could be a, a few years before they actually start running up against one another. You know, yeah. So readers who who look to you are looking for insight into what's going on in the industry, um, and as you have been covering public companies for a long time, are there any? Warning signs that if I'm a, a, a an institutional investor or a retail investor, that I should be looking out, and saying, you know, their story is way more ahead of what the actual company is. Like, how how do you, you know, if you were to counsel people, like, what are the things to look for to not buy a company? Yeah, you know, that's 
I can go off of what has been reported, or at least you know the investor alerts that have been issued by, say, the SEC, and I think there was another Canadian regulatory agency that several weeks ago, or shortly before legalization in Canada, said that basically Canada's uh, marijuana companies aren't exactly doing a great job or could be doing a better job in disclosing their financials and being clear about how they're measuring some of these things. Like cost of production, there's no standard way of measuring that. You know, um, <clears throat> and uh, the SEC put out an investor alert, I, um, I'm forgetting when at this point, that kind of advised people to use uh, the same due diligence they'd use with other companies, you know, like like frequent name changes or, you know, guarantees of massive returns. Those should be, you know, th th things like that, the SEC says, are what people should watch out for. That's pretty basic, but that's, that's you know, sort of what's going on right now. With So we, we're, we're getting the boot before, okay. we, yeah. before we do. Um, what is the one thing that people are not paying attention to, whether it be investors or the industry, that you think that everybody should be paying attention to? You know... What I'm paying attention to right now, and I'm sure that there are people, there are plenty of people walking past us right now that know a lot more about this industry than I do. I'm, I'm, I'm a year and I'm still learning, but what I'm sort of paying attention to is how these companies can avoid just selling what ends up being regarded as a commodity. You know, how do you get people, how do you get customers to commit to- Building a brand. Yeah, to, to, and to, to a certain cannabis brand. product, the way they would commit to say, Marlboro or Budweiser, you know, a, a generation ago. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, hey, um, thank you. This was a short conversation. We yeah. would like to have you back um, to have a much more in-depth conversation. Um, where can people find you? What are, if social handles or? Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm on Twitter. That's uh, that's at ibd underscore b peters b p e t e r s. And that's usually where you can find me. And yeah. his work is on investors.com. Yep. And he's and produced yes, that, our an website. incredible yes. amount of work. So good job. Go off. Thank and you. Awesome. Go forth and report. And we'll put <laughs> cool. all those links in the show notes. So. Okay. 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 Thanks, Bill. Right, thanks, thanks, Bill. All right. So Anne and I are now joined by two of our friends who work with us at KCSA, um, associate producer, whatever producer, Nick Opich, who has been on the pod and... and <laughs> whatever, and, producer. Whatever. Finally got to make it to Podcast Row with you guys. It's awesome. Yeah. And we're also joined by Annie Graff, who is on the KCSA team. In Welcome. LA. Hello. Happy to be here. You don't sound like a horse. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that is so making the show happy to be here <laughs> Wilbur <laughs> we have a lot of clients here and you guys have been running all over managing interviews with the media and this is both your first time here at MJ Biz what do you think the media is are they as overwhelmed as it feels like everybody else is or are they just kind of plugging along and this is another day at the office uh, I think it's definitely not another day at the office because as anybody that was at MJ Biz trying to do registration yesterday could see it's going to take an hour and a half just to, to get in here because so many people are so excited about this and showing up and I think that startled the media because some of these people were thinking oh I can just show up like and just register uh, on the floor and then all of a sudden they're waiting in line for an hour and a half and getting all frustrated but um, didn't we do a couple of interviews from the yeah, line yeah we did a couple of interviews just right the in the line with some them. clients it's like <laughs> alright they got their badges we'll come in out here and just talk with them but um, I think I th there's definitely a lot of excitement, but I don't think they were 
really prepared for how quickly this has jumped uh, in the, the last year and uh, how quickly it's going to jump next year because they're already talking about having to expand this into the North Hall at the, at the convention center next year. So it's going to be it's going to be That's even bigger. CES level <laughs> shit right there. So Annie, you've um, <clears throat> you've been doing PR now for a long time, and you've been working in the the cannabis industry for a couple of years. Have you seen the the type of reporters change? Is it or is it still the same kind of trade show stuff that? that no, I think there's definitely a, a much wider kind of swath from across the media industry and types of publications that now cover this industry. Um, so I, I think it's growing constantly, um, and it's not just freelancers anymore working for multiple publications. They're dedicated. Now now beat reporters that are covering cannabis. So. Who do you who do you think's doing the best job covering the space right now? Well, I think that question totally depends again on what, you know, sort of, I mean, it's getting um, broken down now into sectors. You know, you have someone like Craig Giamona who really has his finger on the pulse of like, you know, what's going on financially. And, and he's, then, at, he's at Bloomberg News. Yes. And then you have reporters that are covering different aspects. So like you might even have a, like an art excellent reporter that's writing for like a, a smaller publication like Greenhouse Growers that is focused more on agriculture and sort of that, that whole, you know, sector within cannabis so it's um it's now becoming so broad that you can literally have reporters covering almost mini beats you guys have i assume been to other trade shows how does this one compare to other ones that you've seen uh it's huge uh, like I went to the Cannabis World Congress in New York and I thought that was really big. I think that was my first major exposure uh, in terms of like a cannabis conference and um, outside of I think one of, one of the days when all the media was there that was like crazy hectic and doing everything but the day after it's like alright like it's a everybody's still going along with the flow but today like even uh, we're doing day two here on the podcast row it's like there's still a bunch of action going out there but there's tons of people walking the floor so I think there's, there's a lot of excitement here people are really looking for this to get big anything that you guys have seen here that like popped your eyes um i think it's uh, the excitement from the local media i think is very surprising because if go back a year and a half when we were trying to pitch this to um you know like the the local network stations or the local dailies and stuff they weren't that excited about it they thought it was like a little bit niche and then they would have to also combine it with like okay but it's also still dangerous um, aspect to it where I'm walking around with like the local Fox 5 and CBS 8 out here in Las Vegas they are just so excited about this they are only talking about it in a positive way on how the community is embracing it they are, they're loving that Las Vegas is the hub for it but we're also seeing that in like markets like Maryland or Pennsylvania where it's a lot more limited it's still medical out there but we've gotten to the point where reporters are telling us stop calling us about this stuff like we've already covered like these dispensary openings we're, we're not worried about that anymore we want the big news the more important stuff. Annie you were talking before we, we started recording um, that you were surprised by what the demographic of the people walking through the the conferences and one of the big issues that the industry faces is that there is not a lot or there are not a lot of w women or or people of color here so Give us a little feedback on what you're seeing as you walk through. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, at a conference of this size, you're really getting, um, a, I would argue that this is sort of an accurate representation because people are coming from all over the country. This is a draw for the entire industry mm -hmm. um, to be here this week. And, uh, you know, I, I do have to say, like, you are still seeing a very predominantly male, um, you know, a, a group of attendees of, of even uh, the vendors and the different folks that are here with booths. Um, so I would say that, you know, there's still 
a bit more work to be done maybe to make this industry um, friendly and, and open to women. But um, there are women here. And um, I think it's people are kind of like aware of that different sort of, you know, bit of growth that we could really sort of um, we want to encourage um, from women. So, you know, I think maybe it's just going to be a process. Uh, so it's it's hopeful. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Get back to work. Thank you.